Thanks everyone and welcome to this edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise's podcast in motion since 2011. It's April 2023 and we just spoke with Howard Zare, who has been instrumental in the modern restorative justice movement, celebrating his new book, Restorative Justice, Insights and Stories from My Journey. This conversation was about so many different aspects of his life including but not only about restorative justice, as well as anecdotes and explorations of the field. Thank you so much for being a supporter of Restorative Justice on the Rise. For more information about our podcast, you can go to www.restorativejusticeontherise.org. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and other outlets. Be well, and thank you for listening. Good day, everyone, and such a warm welcome to you all. It's great to be here with you and, of course, with Howard Zare. And today, uh, we are going to be taking this hour to have a little fireside conversation with Howard about his new book. As you know, um, I I know that this may be a reintroduction to Howard for many of you, but I'd like to open up um, just by, first of all, acknowledging... Um, you all as part of this global community and Ubuntu without you, um, we wouldn't be here. So thank you so much for your daily attention and practices in the field of restorative justice. And thank you for your support of restorative justice on the rise, um, the podcast, the educational opportunities, and most importantly, the lifting up of one another in the work that we do in peace building and RJ. So thank you, thank you so much. And um, I just want to open up by, like I said, reintroducing um, Dr. Zare, uh, who is one of the most humble and accessible practitioners in this field that I've ever met. Um, I remember in my own personal journey, reaching out to him and getting responses and support and I felt heard and understood for what I was hoping to uh, learn more about, which continues to this day. So uh, thank you, Howard, so much for taking time today to be with us. And uh, just a few words, if I may, um, from your official uh, biography in the back of this beautiful new book of yours. Howard is widely known as the grandfather of restorative justice And he began as a practitioner and theorist in restorative justice in the late 1970s at the foundational stage of the field. He has lectured and consulted in many countries, a prolific writer and editor, speaker, educator, and photojournalist, Zare has actively mentored other leaders in the field. In 1996, Dr. Zare joined the faculty of the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding at Eastern Mennonite University, Harrisburg, Harrisonburg, Virginia, excuse me. He continues to hold the position of distinguished professor of restorative justice and is involved in the field through the Zare Institute of Restorative Justice at the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding, Eastern Mennonite University. Prior to this, Zare served as director of the Mennonite Central Committee, U.S. Office on Crime and Justice. From 1970 to 1978, he taught at Talladega College, 
in Alabama, and he received his PhD from Rutgers University and his master's from the University of Chicago. His undergraduate degree is from Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. He has so many publications. He's been pro prolific, not just in restorative justice, but his attention and care has been in many places and he enjoys a wide circle of colleagues and friends all over the world, which of course you are among that circle. Um, his, some of his books, as you know, uh, include The Little Book of Restorative Justice. Um, he's very well known for coining the three R's of restorative justice and some of his photography works, which are extraordinary, include Doing Life, Reflections of Men and Women Serving Life Sentences, Transcending, Reflections of Crime Victims, What Will Happen to Me, Pickups, A Love Story, and most recently, Still Doing Life, 22 Lifers, 25 Years Later. Howard also does beautiful personal portraits, um, exploring aging and um, the beauty of this life, really. And again, I'm just grateful to you, Howard. Um, I'd like to open us up our conversation today between you and I, and then we're going to later open it up for questions and conversation with you before we close at the top of the hour. Sujata Baliga is a, uh, one of um, Howard's men uh, mentees. Um, she, she calls him his mentor. And she says on page 156 of his new book, something really profound that I wanted to, to open up with today. Howard has changed the way I cut apples. I love watching how he carefully, lovingly makes slices that preserve every bit, except the stem and the seeds, which of course he composts. What a perfect metaphor for how he views the human experience. Nothing is to be discarded, not one single part of any of us. That's how I've understood Howard's philosophical contribution to the world. But more importantly, it's how I experience him as a mentor and friend. All of me is unconditionally welcome, even the parts I wish weren't true. What a blessing that truly is. And again, that's from Sujata Baliga. Bless her heart wherever she is today. And she's an attorney and a restorative justice practitioner and the winner of the MacArthur Fellowship. So Howard, again, welcome. And I'm Molly Rowan Leach. For those of you that may not know who I am, um, I'm honored to be here with you all. And Howard, I wonder if you might open up today um, with just sharing a bit about the book um, and what maybe you'd like um, to convey with it um, and what you'd like to for people to receive from um, possibly the intersections between all of these places that you've given so much of your life energy and attention and in such a deep way. Well, thank you, Molly, and, and it's it's nice to see familiar faces on here too. I see a number of familiar faces on here today. What a treat! 
Uh, well, the book was not supposed to be about me so much. Uh, my my long-term publishers had started a new publishing company, and they wanted to do a book with me, and I, I finally said, well, you could take some of my writing and talks that haven't been circulated so much and put them together. So they did that, and then they leaned on me to add stories and some photographs, and we sort of argued about that, and finally I did. So, <laughs> so it really was designed, the intention was to just put out some of these things. Uh, I sort of think this is my last book, probably. Um, and like I say, it ended up being a lot more about me than I intended. I hadn't intended all these tributes and that kind of thing to end up in. Mm. Um, but what I was hoping is is to get some, I, there'd be some pieces about restorative justice that people might not have picked up elsewhere, might be make it accessible. Uh, I, it, was, it was fun to write. I mean, I'm, I've been a long-term amateur radio operator. That's been a big, in the electronics, have been a big part of my life. And now that I'm retired, I'm doing a lot of that. And so it was fun. I had this essay I had written about why an old geezer like me never got into restorative justice, why we're still in it. Uh, kind of a gender analysis, and so it was fun to have a place to publish that. So uh, I don't know beyond that. It just uh, it was, it was just a way to collect some things. So Howard, um, a burning question that I bet I'm not the only one um, that has this is, uh, you know, you have, of course, um, you're very well known in in the restorative justice field globally. And again, welcome to those of you. This is a global conversation. I know that there's people here from all points of uh, the world. So thank you so much for taking time here mm -hmm. today with us. Um, what do you feel it, are the, the possible um, intersections between photography, restorative practices, and your other interests? Um, well, photography has been a... Photography has been a big part of my life uh, for many years. Uh, I first got into it by accident. I was working on my PhD in, in Europe, and I, I was going to archives that didn't have copiers in 1969, 1970. And so I got a, I, I bought a, a very simple camera. I still have it here. Um, and I rigged up a lighting system, and I would go into these archives and copy the statistics I needed. <laughs> And then I just got hooked on the camera. And uh, to me, a couple of things. I think communication is has to be both visual and verbal. I mean, the research tells us that we we get a lot of our information uh, visually. And so I really think communication shouldn't be limited to words. And so part of it is a way to round out communication by adding a visual element. Um, I also think that it has a way to tap into the more nonlinear uh, parts. I mean, my graduate school just emphasized the rational so much. And for me, this was a way to offset that other part of my brain. Um, it's also been a way of some of my concerns about the way we other people, the way we stereotype people, the way we the social distance using the pre-pandemic version of social distance. That is the our distance we feel from people. Um, Nils Christie, Norwegian criminologist, was a big influence on me, and he talked about the thing that allows us to impose pain on people is social distance. The farther we are, the less we understand people, the easier it is to 
impose pain. And he was arguing if we're going to limit pain, we're going to have to reduce social distance. And for me, photography with, with the various books has been a way to reduce that social distance, to challenge stereotypes, to help us listen to people without those stereotypic clues, whether it's so-called crime victims or so-called offenders of crime. Um, so to me, it's been a kind of a package that gets both sides of my brain going. Uh, I think ways of knowing have got to be intuitive and artistic as well as rational and linear. And so it's a way of, it's a way of being more holistic about ways of knowing, I suppose. So the, the nonverbal realm, I'm hearing a bit of that in what you just shared, which was so profoundly beautiful. Thank you for that reminder of uh, being whole brained. <laughs> in this work, right? And of course, yeah. let's not forget a sense of humor, <laughs> lest we take ourselves too seriously. That's exactly uh, right. Would you, would you be willing to say a few words about nonverbal communication and its role in restorative practices and in our lives, perhaps, as a whole? Uh, well, as I said, for one thing, that, that conveying things through something like photography or the arts. Uh, I've taught, um, I've team taught a course called Research as Art and Transformation, where we help, we have people draw on the arts as a part of research. Um, the other part of it, I had a profound, one of the profound, most profound experiences of my life was when I went to Morehouse as a, a, a historically black college as an 18 year old. Uh, being immersed suddenly in an African-American world as a European-American and realizing very quickly that people were reading my body language, my nonverbal communication in a totally way, totally different way than anybody had before. Uh, I had to I had to really rethink what I was conveying in my nonverbal communication. And that really, that was a part of a, a much larger, really very, uh, very important part of my life. Uh, so that's because that's something. And then as I've traveled internationally, I've tried to be aware of that too. There's just so many things we may be conveying that we don't know we're conveying or we're not conveying that we think we're conveying. So does that get at your question? Yes. I, I th I'm, I'm very passionate about the, this area as it, especially in particular concerns the building of relationship and connection and, and hopefully cultivating the conditions for increasing trust um, and understanding as we respond to harm and conflict. And um, I'm excited to hear from people wherever they are in the world and have conversations about how we can be better attuned to the nonverbal part of this work, especially again, as it relates to um, harm and conflict, but to any kind of restorative practices, really, um, so that yeah. we can so that we can really acknowledge one another in in a meaningful way, um, with better, you know, with better responsiveness um, and awareness. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I I just want to pause and thank everybody. If you're just joining us, thank you so much for being here. This is the Restorative Justice on the Rise podcast, uh, podcast since 2011. Um, we're here because of Howard Zare, 
and celebrating his new book, um, Restorative Justice, Insights and Stories from My Journey. And I've just posted the link to the um, direct page for the book in our chat today. If you're listening into the podcast, it's walnutstreetbooks.com. You can get the study guides. There's three different kinds of study guides there that are free to download for support of um, sharing this book out with your community, organization, school, wherever you may be. Um, three different types of, of discussion um, prompt areas for you. And I, I just want to encourage you to also look into Howard's website um, for his photography, which is Howard Zare Photography, um, howardzare.com, that is. And then, and then in addition, many of you already know of the amazing work of the Zare Institute, but they are doing a lot of great webinars regularly and really encouraging you to visit their site, um, which is the zare-institute.org. So just want to make sure we're acknowledging. And I also want to thank uh, Merle Good, who is working diligently to take care of the book distribution. There are discounts on the book for bulk orders. So let's get back into the conversation. Um, please reach out if you need anything around um, supporting getting in contact with Walnut Street Books. We can help direct you there if you need that. Um, so Howard, if we could go back for just a moment to, it was about 10 years ago, you and I were talking in the green room um, that you were on our podcast for the first time. And just before that, you and I had kind of gotten to know each other a bit because you've been so helpful uh, with my own understanding of, uh, or growing understanding that continues today of RJ. Uh, but would you be willing to share with us what has grown or changed about your current understanding of restorative justice um, then and now? What, is there anything that, that has changed for you or deepened? Well, it's certainly become more expansive. Uh, you know, when we started this, uh, those of us who are there sort of in the early days of it, we were just trying to address some deficiencies in the criminal legal system, uh, not thinking more grandly. We didn't have the term restorative justice. We didn't have the philosophy. We just were trying to address some issues uh, and didn't never imagine all, all the different applications it would have. I mean, today, just fall, I read The Guardian the English, and that no, they're, they're the all the conversations going on about restorative justice as a way to address the, the Britain's legacy of slavery. It's just really interesting. Uh, and, you know, I dreamed maybe it would have that kind of application, but never would have imagined. So it's certainly become more expansive, especially as more, a wider, diverse group of people have gotten involved in it, a younger generation and so forth, been very helpful. Um, I mean, who would have guessed the Smithsonian Museum of American History would have a have a center for restorative history to address the wrongs committed by museums? It's wonderful. Uh, you know, I look back. My basic I, I, those of you, some of you along here are old enough to remember really remember the Volkswagen Bug. Uh, you know, remember the Volkswagen Bug in the late fifties and the sixties? They 
they never made very many changes. I mean, every you'd have a new year and the tail light would get a little bigger or something, but it never dramatically changed. And I think that's been my journey too. I'm kind of a Volkswagen bug thinker, keep adding a headlight here, changing a headlight, tail light. But when I look back, my first publication on this was 1985, and when I look back at the basic concept, I've expanded, I've deepened it, I've been corrected on some things, but but it hasn't changed a whole lot, which is kind of interesting. Uh, other people would articulate different ways, but for me, it's been true. I'm also curious to, to invite a little conversation around implementation, which seems to be a very um, well-covered uh, conversation in many pockets of the world because there's so much of a rise of restorative justice in these decades. Um, and I'm just wondering, you, you talk quite a bit um, in the book about the importance of working alongside and with the traditional systems. And I'm wondering if you have an anecdote or um, something you'd like to share about a, a success that you've witnessed um, and how that, how that happened um, between restorative justice practitioners or programs and traditional um, professionals and officials within uh, the traditional criminal justice systems. And what would you also recommend for those of us who are really, you know, finding that challenging for good reason? Well, it is It really is challenging. I mean, the warnings have been right from the start. People have warned that this bigger, punitive, legalistic system was going to overwhelm a smaller, more restorative system. Uh, and to some extent, that's happened. Um, you know, right from the start, when, when, when I was first working on restorative justice, there was really a movement in the conflict resolution field to try to get away from the system entirely. Uh, to lock people like in San Francisco community boards, they try to set up so that people could come straight to them and avoid the system completely. And that would be my ideal. And I'm pleased to see a whole group of advocates these days, some of them calling themselves transformative justice advocates, advocating for that. And I think that's wonderful. If we can make communities learn to be safe and take care of their arms and wrongs alone, that's really what ought to happen. It's not, you know, unfortunately, not always practical, uh, partly because the legal system is so, it's, it's such a, it's so greedy. It claims, you know, certain kinds of offenses, it claims a monopoly on. And, it, and you can get in legal trouble if you try to handle them without. And that's partly why we have worked with the system is because we weren't allowed, couldn't find a way not to do it. Um, but it is very problematic. The system has so many interests that it serves that are beyond the stated interests, interests around economic interests, interests around keeping the status, social status quo, interests of personal interests that people have in it. It's so flawed that way. Uh, and, yet, and yet we need some kind of orderly system to to provide for due process. So there, you know, I've worked in societies that didn't have a functioning legal system, and that's really problematic too. So I think I think there's a lot the system can learn from us if we could really make it work. Uh, you know, we really ideally you'd have 
and there's, you know, like in Concord, Massachusetts, a former student of that CJ, uh, what's it called, Communities for Restorative Justice. I don't know the current state of it, but a former student of mine used to run it, a cooperation between the community and the police. And it was really pretty profound. The police department, the police chief was a real convert to it and had really changed the way they were doing things. I run into, I run into individual judges and lawyers who have, totally change the way they do their work because of restorative justice, and yet the system persists. So uh, it's always going to be problematic. It's partly why we who advocate and practice restorative justice need to be open to research and criticism. That's been one of the biggest challenges in this field is that so many people who are advocates of restorative justice think it's such a beautiful thing. How could there be any, any downside to it? And I think I say in the book that uh, one of the most hostile audiences I ever addressed was in the early days of when I addressed the conference of practitioners and talked about the dangers of co-optation and, and diversion and dilution. And, and people were like, why are you talking about that? What a downer. But we have to be open to those things. Uh, so I think there's potential. I mean, the most promising, even though it's flawed, the most promising lens I've seen was New Zealand and the youth justice system. We can talk about that if you want. It suggests a model that might be a way to get the best of the legal system and the best of, of a restorative approach. So, so I, the more we can be independent of the system, the better. Uh, and we should we we need to cooperate with the system for certain kinds of things, but we need to have our eyes open when we do it. Howard, I, I I would guess that many people, including myself, would love to hear a little bit more about New Zealand. Um, and any other places in the, this beautiful world that you've been. Um, and also in the book, there are some great pictures of your experiences worldwide that have never been released before. So if, if you'd like to uh, elaborate a bit more on your, your witness and direct experience in New Zealand and how you, you've seen it um, support some of the, the more positive progress towards what you've just been speaking about, that would be wonderful. Also, uh, sorry to interrupt. Um, would you also be willing to speak as to um, if new, new, my understanding is that in New Zealand, they're also using restorative justice very much so for adult um, responses within their traditional criminal systems. But it would be great to hear more about that piece too, if you would. Well, I, I haven't been there for a number. I mean, I've been there many times, but not in the last yeah. few years. And in the years that I was working there, there was a lot of resistance from the adult system. And some of the judges who were in the juvenile system were just so frustrated with the Justice Department, the Ministry of Justice in New Zealand, because they weren't doing more. Uh, so I can't really speak how much. I know they have adopted more of it. Uh, some of it was based a little bit more on our model, a more voluntary, but but it, it really has built more into legislation even in the adult system than it is here in the U.S. Well, as I understand what happened, I started going to New Zealand in 1994 when I was invited to speak. That was a, in, in the 1980s, they had a crisis in the juvenile. They don't call it juvenile. It's kind of a demeaning term. It's youth justice. In the youth justice and also the child welfare, child protection division, they had a crisis. They had more kids incarcerated, I think one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. They had a lot of kids in foster care. 
guess what? They were significant. The majority were Maori, South Pacific minority folks. And they tried to do a conventional uh, reform, and it didn't pass. And my understanding is they decided maybe they ought to listen to people. So they set some listening teams around. And the Maori, the indigenous people in New Zealand, were saying two things to them. They said, what you're doing is institutionally racist, um, and it's not our way. It's, 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 it's counterculture for us. It's just not the way we did things. And as a result, and the, and the Maori are quite, stra- quite uh, uh, strategic. They were used in British, relied on them, for instance, in the war for, for their military strategy. So they approached the government very strategically. And, and in 1989, uh, that young people and their and Young Persons and the Families Act was passed, which was really inherently restorative, even though they didn't know what restorative justice. What it, 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 it provided for a conference so that for serious crime, except murder, instead of going to the court, you would go to a conference. And in this conference, you'd have the young person who committed the wrong and any family members, virtual family members, whatever, and the, the person who'd been harmed, if anybody they wanted to bring, you'd have a police officer, because in New Zealand, the police were bringing the charges, and you'd have a facilitator provided not by the criminal legal system, but by social services, a trained facilitator. And this conference was to decide what was owed to the victim and what needed to be, what kind of plan it needed to be put in place to keep this person from doing this again. Uh, so what they did, and you know, in our system, the court is the default for everything. Taking the taking the process that you use for the worst possible cases, and that's the default for everything. They said no. The default is the conference, and the court is the backup to that. Oh, and the other person in the meeting is a specially trained attorney who's not an adversarial attorney, but rather to help oversee the process. I've sat in on on interviews of lawyers in New Zealand who want to be. They're called youth advocates. And I've often said it's easier to be to get to be a death penalty attorney in America than it is to be a youth advocate in New Zealand. They really grill you to make sure you know you're not an adversarial lawyer and that you know that you're there for the protection, you know, the people involved in that. Um, so what they've done is made the conference the default and the court as a backup. And, and then they learned about restorative justice, and so they tweaked it to make more, more role for victims and so forth. But, but in, inherently, it was a response more to an indigenous process and concerns than it was to some kind of restorative justice theory. There are places like Impact Justice in California have been adapting this uh, model for here in the U.S., where they, instead of going to the prosecutor, the prosecutor agrees to allow these conferences to happen and keep them to solve the whole thing and keep it out. So that's been, to me, the most promising example of sort of blending what could be the best of the legal system and the best of a more restorative system. And I believe our friend Sujata Baliga is um, one or the founders, one of the founders. She was a kind of pioneer. She's yeah. not doing that now. She was sort of the okay. pioneer of that. Yeah, Yeah. just um, acknowledging Sujata again. Um, for all of her work in this field. And um, she was also on this podcast many years ago as well. Um, 
really appreciating all the amazing people doing this work. Yeah. Um, Howard, you, in the book, you talk about um, the lens of living restoratively. And, you know, a lot of people regard you as, like I've said before, so accessible, deeply humble, um, very kind um, and sharp. And sharp meaning like um, a, able to articulate restorative practices in such a wonderful way to help support people coming into the field, to help support people who are in it already and much beyond. Um, but you, you point in the book to way the, I think you call it the 10 ways of living restoratively. And I'm curious if we could touch on that a bit. Um, you don't necessarily need to go point by point necessarily, but tell us a little bit more about why um, living restoratively is so important to you and maybe some of your favorite of those 10, if not all. Well, you know, when people started talking about living restoratively at first, I didn't know what in the world they were talking about. <laughs> you know, we, 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 were, we were trying to deal, deal with crime. What in the world are they talking about? Uh, so it took me a while. Uh, you know, people would say, well, restorative justice changed my life. Well, that could understand. They'd tell me a story about how their family was burglarized or assaulted or whatever, and I could understand that. But then there are people that say, this the encounter has, it's, it's, it's a way of, they're like, what in the world are they talking about? I finally figured out, you know, the criminal justice system, the criminal legal system tries to influence us to be good, but it does it by saying negatively. It says, if you harm people, we're going to harm you. And so to try to make that more humane, we have to bring values from the outside and apply them on top of this. Restorative justice sort of has within it the values we want to live by. It's it built into it are the values like, uh, respect for other people and taking responsibility for our action and reminder that we that we live in a web of relationships. Those are, to me, that's the core of what we're talking about here. So how do we live with integrity? How do we take responsibility for our actions? How do we live uh, in a good way with other people? Uh, to me, that's the core of living restoratively. And, you know, you can get those kind of same principles from other from other perspectives, other religious traditions, other ways. I mean, a good friend of mine from Morehouse uh, read my book recently and said, well, you know, those are the ways I was brought up to live. And that's right. They are for a lot of people. But I think not everybody was. And so for some people, it's been a real touchstone for them, to, to, a way to codify or think about how they want to live. Uh, that may, maybe they didn't get it. I mean, I got that through my religious tradition, uh, a lot of it. Uh, but not everybody does, and so I think it's become its side of that. Uh, Howard, so, yeah, I, yeah, go ahead. No, please, excuse me. I'm just no, go for go for okay. it. So one of the most verdant conversations in many spaces that I've been lucky to be a part of in this field is around shared power, and um, you know, doing with right. And so when we're thinking about these, you know, ways to live restoratively, and of course the three R's, um, what are the ways that we can do those with and not simply just say, these are the three R's or these are the principles and this is what we're going to do. How can we be more um, truly 
inclusive an honoring of the beautiful diversity in this world and um, really, you know, give that sense to people right off the bat. Well, I think, you know, one of my favorite writers has been Barry Lopez, who died fairly recently. And in a book about the Europeans coming to the Americas, he says we need to learn to be invitational and not impositional. Mm. And I think that's really important, that our attitude be invitational. Uh, not just invitation to join, but invitation to dialogue. Like to me, the most thing when I've traveled and spoken about restorative justice around the world, the most exciting thing is to say, here's a concept of restorative justice. Now, what's your tradition? Does this fit with your tradition? What, what would you say about this? To invite people into dialogue. And to me, that's the core of restorative justice. It's a dialogue about how we want to live together, what we want to do when somebody messes up, what are our resources? What are our traditions? So to me, it's a it's a stance. It's just a reminder. I mean, I just restorative justice an invitation to a conversation. As far as, I don't know if restorative justice, as some of us articulate, is the answer, but I hope it's an invitation to conversation around that. Howard, would you like to um, say a little bit more to, please, if you would, about co-option of practices and honoring traditions, global traditions that have been here for a very, very long time? Um, well, a couple of ways to go at that. I've always argued, I said, when you introduce a new idea, the first thing people do is ignore it. The second thing they do is fight it. And the third thing they do is co-opt. And that's the stage we're in in many parts, places with restorative justice. No, people no longer, some people fight it, but people are saying, well, that's, we're doing restorative justice. Or they're taking some of the rhetoric and applying it to them, what they're doing. I've seen so much of that. Uh, it's really hard to sort out who's really doing restorative justice these days. Um, so that's one way of looking at it. The other is the question of whether has a restorative justice field among European Americans say, co-opt an indigenous uh, and there is a there's legitimate argument around that to me I, mean, I didn't know anything about indigenous justice when i first developed this stuff uh, and i should have but i just didn't know where even where to go for it but um to me what has emerged is in a lot of ways restorative justice is a kind of western modern way of articulating what people or or what people have been doing for many centuries in many places, or a way of modernizing in some ways. I mean, Ali Gohar is trying to get in here. I saw Ali in Pakistan has done that. He has is, he is, used restorative justice as a catalyst to talk with people about the Jurga tradition and he, in his in his tradition and how to bring that, how to, how to merge that with human rights issues and so forth. To me, that's, that's the best of it. You know, I had a, a couple stories I tell in there. Um, one of them, when I, the first time I went to New Zealand, it was only six years after the new system had put in place. And they, I hadn't known this ahead of time, but they paid for my expenses for bringing me over by, by, by uh, renting me out all over the country. I was up and down talking on the radio, and groups and all this. And at the end of the journey, the principal youth judge, who was Maori, 
said, you know, you don't know how good it is to hear you articulating what we're trying to do from a Pakia or a European standpoint, because people want to write it off as Maori. And I began to realize, so what he was saying is that you're articulating it in a way that Europeans can understand, uh, but you're, you're, bringing, you're articulating some of our traditions in that way. So I think in some ways, it, restorative justice is the best of those two. But there has been a discussion about whether restorative justice has actually co-opted or, or appropriated uh, indigenous traditions in this country. And that conversation is probably beyond us right here, but that is a legitimate issue, I think. So Howard, in all, and I wanted just to honor um, Ali Gohar and all of our international participants today. Ali, welcome. I'm so glad to see you here um, and everyone else. I know we also have with us Amber from um, Gibraltar, who was trying to introduce family group, group conferencing there as far back as 1999. She's a transformational attorney. That's my description of her doing work over in Europe and worldwide. Um, and I just, I wish we had time to do a talking circle with everybody today. Um, would like to invite people though, to um, put comments in the chat if you would like to today, as well as um, questions about the book that you might have. And certainly we will stay in touch with you all um, as best we can to make sure that you get uh, in touch with the Walnut Street Books if you need to. And also just a reminder again, that they have three free discussion guides there on their website. Um, and please again, check out the Zare Institute website for more information about their extraordinary webinars. And I wanna also give a shout out too, to um, the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding and all the work that they're doing in trauma-informed practices and trauma study. Um, they offer a lot of different certificates and degrees, so please support their work. Um, so back, back to our conversation, Howard. Um, would love to hear from you, um, kind of going back to a bit about uh, some of the misconceptions of restorative justice one of the pieces that you talk a little bit about in the book is the idea of forgiveness. And I think you and I have talked about this before, but I think it's worth revisiting briefly um, because it is such a large misconception in this field that restorative justice and, and forgiveness are conflated, really. And um, you might recall Sujata's work um, with that wonderful family that was grieving their daughter the New York Times published a piece on that story, and basically, you know, it kind of blew up this conflation between RJ and forgiveness, that it's about that. So could, could you just help us clarify, um, you know, what, this, what, what that is doing um, in, in raising misconceptions and... Uh, help explain what restorative justice is in relationship to forgiveness. And well, that, that, that particular situation was a classic case where we, both of us who talked to the reporter, emphasized that this was not forgiveness. And then when the editor, you know, but then when the reporter writes a story and it goes in, the editors take over and they do what they want to do and they put forgiveness on it. And then it creates all kinds of new problems. 
I've, I've spent a lot of times with victim groups because there's been this misunderstanding that somehow we are promoting forgiveness, that you're going to have to think about forgiveness if you go through a restorative process and so forth. My point is this is not about forgiveness. This is about meeting victims' needs. It's about holding offenders accountable for what they've done. It's about allowing people to engage in conversation and decision-making. But if they decide to move toward forgiveness or away from hostility, that is up to them. But a good practitioner is not going to bring this up. This is not what it's about. Now, statistically, more people who go through this move toward each other. Some of them actually do forgive. Some would never say that they forgive, but they'll say, I feel differently about the other. I understand the other better. Uh, the research has shown that that's true. But that's not, it's not about forgiveness. It's about meeting people's needs. It's about holding people responsibility. It's about giving them opportunities to engage in the process. What they decide to do is up to them, uh, as far as I can. But the media, you know, the media loves these forgiveness stories. Uh, or they what they perceive to be forgiveness stories. And so they're constantly shaping the stories around that. And then we have all this damage control to do. Yeah, trying to explain to people and to groups that this is not what it's about. Uh, on the same token, on the other side of the table or around the circle is, of course, the offender author, as Dominic Barter has referred mm -hmm. to that role. And um, accountability is something that's a very verdant conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, we say holding accountable. Um, that, to me, has an element of doing over to, you know, to someone. Um, what, what, what have you witnessed yourself, or how would you describe the optimal way of um, cultivating accountability in response to harm and conflict? It's about allowing people to understand the other, understand the impact of their behavior, understanding what they, I'll give you an example. One of the years ago, I was co-facilitator in a, in a serial rape case. This fellow had committed, I believe it was something like 14 attacks on young women in a year's time. Yeah. And, um, He'd been in prison a long time, and one of the women who had been victimized by him wanted to meet with him, and uh, she said she just wanted to tell him what he'd done to her life. Uh, she just wanted an opportunity to tell him what he'd done to her life. Uh, she said she didn't have any questions, although when they got in there, she of course did. But the interesting thing was this fellow said, well, at some point in there, she said, how could you do this? This thing, and he began to describe how his his mother had left him, his father had abused him, and, and some of that. Uh, but also, she had talked about how it impacted her life. And he told me later, he says, "That is, the, I've been through all the therapy programs that this prison system offers. I have never got it before what I did until I heard. I realized that what I did to her is what had happened to me." Uh, and he said, now I'm ready to go meet others if they want to. So that that's accountability. I mean, he was also able to answer some questions that she wanted. Uh, he said, uh, he said, I really feel good about myself in the sense that I realized that I, I did some good here. Uh, so 
I mean, he didn't understand any of that as we went and he was willing to do it. He didn't understand any of that before he got into the meeting. It's in the meeting where that kind of thing often happens. So there are some programs who will not, and we're talking now about victim offender dialogue programs of some sort, uh, who will not hold the meeting if the person who caused the harm isn't uh, taken, isn't remorseful. To me, the, more, the main thing is that person who's been victimized gets an informed decision. Like if you have, we don't usually bring, I say we, I'm not a practitioner anymore, but people don't usually bring in a, uh, hold a meeting if the person is not admitting they did it. But there are some really amazing cases where if we, the, the person who was hurt was informed that this person has not taken any responsibility, do you want to meet anyway? And and they did, and there was, it was really transformational. Uh, so so often it's in that encounter uh, that, that things like that happen. I'm, I'm, I think I'm getting a little circular. I'm kind of rambling here, but anyway, I hope that gets at your question. It does very much so. Thank you, Howard. And um, we're at about twelve minutes to the hour. I just want to again thank everybody for being here and um, invite. Uh, comments and any questions you might have in the, the chat if possible and just honoring some of the comments that are coming in um, thank you Ali who says RJ is a river many streams join from different direction in our yurga in Pakistan forgiveness is the end result um, Megan says I should add, some cultures, forgiveness is much more explicitly part. When I've been in South Africa, it was much more, people were much more willing to include forgiveness as part of that conversation than we are in this culture. So it is partly a cultural. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, Megan, thank you for your comments. She says, thank you um, so much for this conversation, especially around co-opting. I work at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Um, and also Dr. Brenda Morrison, thank you for all of your work there as well. Incredible woman. Um, we offer a non-credit RJ certificate. Many of my recent conversations in our info sessions with prospective students and internally is about this issue as Canada continues to grapple with our colonial history. Um, Laverne says, thank you so much for the wonderful conversation. Laverne is a very long time practitioner in this field, instrumental in Baltimore and beyond uh, with the Community Conferencing Center. And I've learned a lot from her, that's for sure. So thank you, Laverne, for being here. Um, Kathy says, I'm excited to offer family healing and reintegration circles based on RJ principles in local jails in Virginia. And um, Liza says, um, if someone doesn't take responsibility for their actions, are they still volunteering to participate in the process since restorative justice is voluntary in nature? Howard, would you like to field that from Liza? Um, well, people should, should never be totally coerced into it, but there is often on the person who's caused the harm, there is often a some coercion or some they're weighing yeah. the pros and cons of it. I don't think that they ever should be forced into it. Uh, occasionally people do surrogates, so they'll have someone who's been a victim meet with someone like that to talk if they're willing to do it. 
but no, part of the process usually is helping both sides think about the risks and benefits and what they need to do to feel that they can feel safe to move and go ahead with it. Uh, so there are, I mean, I, way back early in days, when we first started this, a woman came to me and she'd been victim of rape and the person who had done it was in prison and she wanted to meet with him. And I went to talk to him and he would not meet. But I said, will you answer her questions? And so he answered, she had sent questions with me and she he answered his question and she found that tremendous, she said that was just tremendously helpful. So even though he was not willing to meet, we did find a way to meet some of her needs uh, in that way. So sometimes you have to be kind of creative. You know, I'm not a current practitioner. I'm actively trying to be a has-been, as I say in the book. <laughs> so many other of you that are on here are doing, are so much more engaged, can answer these questions better than I can. Uh, so just, yeah, uh, I, I'm on my way out. So at, during the, the RSVP for this event today, we, we had a question um, about if you had any questions for Howard. So if we can't get to yours today um, or haven't yet and something's on your mind, I would be happy to help steward that um, on your behalf to uh, the right place. So um, also just encouraging you um, to get a copy of his new book, of course. I always like, uh, I'm a pretty good salesperson, I guess, but I mean, this is a legitimate uh, and beautiful work that has, uh, as mentioned before, unreleased photography as of yet. And on that note, Howard, is there anything that we haven't covered yet about this beautiful book that you'd like to make known? Um, photography, I know you talk about radio, your love for ham radio, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we don't we don't have to necessarily talk further about RJ. Let's talk a little bit more about the other aspects of your life before we conclude today. Well, I I would be happy if the book would just inspire some people to realize that they can combine their interests. Uh, like a while back, I was talking to a PhD student PhD student who was working on on a, restor a restorative justice project and. We got to talking about photography. It turns out she was a photographer, and it never occurred to her that she might be able to bring together her photography and restorative justice. Uh, and so we talked about ways to do that. So to me, if, if I would be happy if people would realize they can bring apart, bring the, bring together these various interests uh, in the pursuit of justice and personal development and all of those kinds of things, and even conversations. I mean. I'm a Morse code operator, so I'm really old-fashioned. That's what I do with Morse code. The other day, I'm chatting with Morse code, and I talked to an ex-cop up in the Boston area who had been had contact with restorative justice, primarily, probably through a former student of mine. But I mean, just that, you know, making those kind of connections is just, is just really fun. You, earlier in our conversation today, you were talking about the importance of right, left brain, whole, you know, a whole brain experience um, and perspective and lens of this work. Did you want to say anything more about that at all um, to kind of circle back around? Well, only that I think it's important to cultivate both of those uh, and to feel good about cultivating both of those. Uh, you know, academics, for those of us who are in academics, academic training really emphasizes one side of the brain, really, the linear, rational. It, it assumes that knowledge comes through critique and debate. 
And that is not the only way we learn. We learn by drawing on both sides of the brain. We learn by conversation. We learn by, by. for me, the way to learn is usually not critiquing something, but rather gathering the kernels in there that, that, I, that connect for me. Uh, and so I, it's a reminder that knowledge is, I hope that knowledge is holistic and that our lives can be holistic as well. When we come from that whole brain space, do you feel that it supports our ability to better listen? Oh, I think so. I think so. Very, very much so. Yeah. And then also realize, I mean, people come from with lots of different kind of interests. Uh, and so being able to connect with those is really important. Well, one of the first um, really, I mean, there were so many meaningful pieces about meeting you and getting to know you at conferences a bit, talking with you, you were so accessible, like I've said, um, was you really shared how important it is to, to listen, you know, that listening processes are very, very much at the deepest root, um, the seedling even, of restorative work. And yeah. um, that just meant so much to me, and I bet there's a lot of people in this group today and who are listening maybe on the podcast um, that feel that sense that listening is so essential. Um, what, how, what would you recommend um, for people to, to meditate on, to think about more deeply about um, the qualities of listening? Um, and what, what has inspired you to be such a proponent of listening? Well, I think I, Morehouse experience certainly taught me the importance of that. Um, you know, Elise Boulding used to be on our board of reference, and she used to talk about compassionate listening. And I think that's so important, compassionate listening, the ability to, to listen without critique, to listen to hard things, uh, and without without uh, imposing your own agenda, that's one of the things. Not making it into your stuff, but uh, listening to people where they're at. Uh, I do I do I do a lot of interviewing, you know, and I've tried to do that in, in that kind of more conversational, more empathetic listening kind of style. Uh, Studs Turkle was quite an interviewer, you know. Uh, there's a book about Studs Turkle in which there's an essay by him about interviewing. He says it's it's really more like jazz. You have a kind of structure, but then you just go where you know you improvise from it. Uh, and and so I think that that's kind of where you're going and what you're doing today as well. So oh. I'm, again, rambling a bit, but I think learning to listen is just really important. I want to on that note. Um, appreciate and thank Felix Rosado for being here today. Mm. And um, I just want to read a few more um, and acknowledge a few more comments here in the chat, but I'd like to conclude, if I may, together today with what Felix had to say, um, a, a, a tribute and story brief about you um, from the book. And I've posted a couple times the link to Walnut Street Books. Again, a, a deep thanks to Merle Good for all his work in supporting this in, uh, conversation today. And um, you can get a hold of multiple copies at discounted rates. If you need more information about that, please 
reach out to us directly or to just simply go to the Walnut Street website, which is linked in the chat. Um, so acknowledging and thanking people for their comments. Gregory, thank you. Gregory Winship says, hey, Howard, as you know, we are creating the restorative reentry community at the Transition Center of Kansas City within the Missouri Department of Corrections. Based on restorative justice practices and the work you inspired during my time at the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding. He says, thank you. Thank you. Thanks to you, Greg. And Claudia says, thank you, Howard. You make me laugh when you say you're trying to be a has-been. <laughs> it will never happen. <laughs> I never tire of your humility and deep well of understanding, belief, and being of restorative justice. It was delightful to be in your presence today. Um, I'm, I'm so sorry I can't get to everybody's comments, um, but you're so equally important to both Howard and I. Uh, we're, we just happen to be the ones having this conversation, but you, you are with us. Um, Janet says, do no further harm. It's not always appropriate to bring people together. Bottom line, yeah. victims need to be heard and the victim's needs are primary in my work and understanding. Thank you so much, Janet. Very, very important point. Um, and she also says, in the trainings we do in Wichita, Kansas, we utilize nonviolent communication and in repairing harm conferences, we teach and model it as a part of the pre-conference. Um, yes, the conversation is great. And yes, uh, nonviolent communication was was and is such a, a deep seed planted um, in the beginning by Dr. Marshall Rosenberg. Did you happen to, to ever get a chance to say hi to, to Dr. Rosenberg when he was living? I never met him. No, yeah. I had a lot of students who came from his work. Yeah, yeah uh, right. So... Um, on behalf of Restorative Justice on the Rise, um, honoring the Zare Institute, Walnut Street Books, and of course this amazing book that I have in my hands, please pick up a copy, share it with your friends, colleagues, um, spread the word about it, please. Um, I know we have a global constituency here with us today. It's always a, a deep honor uh, to host these spaces with you. And uh, Howard, I'd love to conclude with words from Felix, if I may. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Felix says, and Felix, thank you for allowing me to read this on your behalf. Inside a 30 foot high concrete wall is where I met Howard. That was in 2009. I was fighting a death by incarceration sentence and had just co-founded an RJ project based largely on his writings. Through the years, we would become colleagues, friends, and brothers. And while his impact on the movement is clear, it's his humility and quiet wisdom that continue to infect me most. That's as true today as in that prison classroom 13 years ago. And that's Felix Rosado, who was recently released from prison and who is the author of Let's Circle Up, Doing Restorative Justice Education Together. 
Thank you so much, everyone, for being together with us today. And of course, to you, Howard. Be well. Thank you. Thank you so much. And it's such an honor to have you with us. Honor to be with you. See you in. Yes. See you in the future, I hope. All right. Have a good day, all.